The recent confirmation hearing for now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh should make it obvious to even the casual observer that something is broken in our federal government. What many have missed in the circus that was the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing is the excellent diagnosis of what ails our federal government presented by Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. In this episode, we will review Senator Sass's diagnosis and what it has to do with a concept known as the non-delegation doctrine. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. In all of the noise, posturing, accusations, and grandstanding that was a part of the Justice Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, I'm afraid that the most enlightening 11 minutes and 50 seconds of the entire process was drowned out. It was Senator Ben Sasse's diagnosis of what is wrong with our federal government. So let's simply start by listening to what he had to say. It's predictable that every confirmation hearing now is going to be overblown, politicized circus. And it's because we've accepted a new theory about how our three branches of government should work, and in particular, how the judiciary should work. What Supreme Court confirmation hearings should be about is an opportunity to go back and do schoolhouse rock civics for our kids. We should be talking about how a bill becomes a law and what the job of Article 2 is and what the job of Article 3 is. So let's try just a little bit. How did we get here and how can we fix it? I want to make just four brief points. Number one, in our system, the legislative branch is supposed to be the center of our politics. Number two, it's not. Why not? Because for the last century and increasing by the decade right now, more and more legislative authority is delegated to the executive branch every year. Both parties do it. The legislature is impotent, the legislature is weak, and most people here want their jobs more than they really want to do legislative work, and so they punt most of the work to the next branch. Third consequence is that this transfer of power means the people yearn for a place where politics can actually be done. And when we don't do a lot of big, actual political debating here, we transfer it to the Supreme Court. And that's why the Supreme Court is increasingly a substitute political battleground in America. It is not healthy, but it is what happens, and it's something that our founders wouldn't be able to make any sense of. And fourth and finally, we badly need to restore the proper duties and the balance of power from our constitutional system. So point one, the legislative branch is supposed to be the locus of our politics properly understood. Since we're here in this room today, because this is a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, we're tempted to start with Article 3. But really, we need Article 3 is the part of the Constitution that sets up the judiciary. We really should be starting with Article 1, which is us. What is the legislature's job? The Constitution's drafters began with the legislature. These are are equal branches, but Article 1 comes first for a reason. 
and that's because policymaking is supposed to be done in the body that makes laws. That means that this is supposed to be the institution dedicated to political fights. If we see lots and lots of protests in front of the Supreme Court, that's a pretty good litmus test barometer of the fact that our republic isn't healthy. Because people shouldn't be thinking they are protesting in front of the Supreme Court, they should be protesting in front of this body. The legislature is designed to be controversial, noisy, sometimes even rowdy, because making laws means we have to hash out the reality that we don't all agree. Government is about power. Government is not just another word for things we do together. The reason we have limited government in America is because we believe in freedom. We believe in souls. We believe in persuasion. We believe in love. And those things aren't done by power. But the government acts by power. And since the government acts by power, we should be reticent to use power. And so it means when you differ about power, you have to have a debate. And this institution is supposed to be dedicated to debate and should be based on the premise that we know since we don't all agree, we should try to constrain that power just a little bit. But then we should fight about it and have a vote in front of the American people. And then what happens? The people get to decide whether they want to hire us or fire us. They don't have to hire us again. This body is the political branch where policymaking fights should happen. And if we are the easiest people to fire, it means the only way the people can maintain power in our system is if almost all the politicized decisions happen here, not in Article 2 or Article 3. So that brings us to a second point. How do we get to a place where the legislature decided to give away its power? We've been doing it for a long time. Over the course of the last century, but especially since the 1930s and then ramping up since the 1960s, a whole lot of the responsibility in this body has been kicked to a bunch of alphabet soup bureaucracies. All the acronyms that people know about their government or don't know about their government are the places where most actual policymaking, kind of in a way lawmaking, is happening right now. This is not what Schoolhouse Rock says. There's no verse of Schoolhouse Rock that says, give a whole bunch of power to the alphabet soup agencies and let them decide what the governance decision should be for the people, because the people don't have any way to fire the bureaucrats. And so what we mostly do around this body is not pass laws. What we mostly do is decide to give permission to the secretary or the administrator of bureaucracy X, Y, or Z to make law-like regulations. That's mostly what we do here. We go home and we pretend we make laws. No, we don't. We write giant pieces of legislation, 1,200 pages, 1,500 pages long, that people haven't read, filled with all these terms that are undefined, and we say the secretary of such and such shall promulgate rules that do the rest of our dang jobs. That's why there's so many fights about the executive branch and about the judiciary, because this body rarely finishes its work. And the House is even worse. Uh, I don't really believe that. It just seemed like it, you needed to try to unite us in some way. So I admit that there are rational arguments that one could make for this new system. The Congress can't manage all the nitty-gritty details of everything about modern government, and this system tries to give power and control to experts in their fields, where most of us in Congress don't know much of anything or uh, about technical matters for sure, but you could also impugn our wisdom if you want. But when you're talking about technical, uh, complicated matters, it's true that the Congress would have a hard time f sorting out every final dot and tittle about every detail. But the real reason, at the end of the day, that 
that this institution punts most of its power to executive branch agencies is because it's a convenient way for legislators to have to, to be able to avoid taking responsibility for controversial and often unpopular decisions. If people want to get reelected over and over again, and that's your highest goal, if your biggest long-term thought around here is about your own incumbency, then actually giving away your power is a pretty good strategy. It's not a very good life, but it's a pretty good strategy for incumbency. And so at the end of the day, a lot of the power delegation that happens from this branch is because the Congress has decided to self-neuter. Well, guess what? The important, the important thing isn't whether or not the Congress has lame jobs. The important thing is that when the Congress neuters itself and gives power to an unaccountable fourth branch of government, it means the people are cut out of the process. There's nobody in Nebraska... There's nobody in Minnesota or Delaware who elected the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine at the USDA. And yet if the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine does something to make Nebraskans' lives really difficult, which happens to farmers and ranchers in Nebraska, who do they protest to? Where do they go? How do they navigate the complexity and the thicket of all the lobbyists in this town to do executive agency lobbying? They can't. And so what happens is they don't have any ability to speak out and to fire people through an election. And so ultimately, when the Congress is neutered, when the administrative state grows, when there is this fourth branch of government, it makes it harder and harder for the concerns of citizens to be represented and articulated by people that the people know that they have power over. All the power right now, or almost all the power right now, happens off stage, And that leaves a lot of people wondering, who's looking out for me? And that brings us to the third point. The Supreme Court becomes our substitute political battleground. It's only nine people. You can know them. You can demonize them. You can try to make them messiahs. But ultimately, because people can't navigate their way through the bureaucracy, they turn to the Supreme Court looking for politics. And knowing that our elected officials no longer care enough to do the hard work of reasoning through the places where we differ and deciding to shroud our power at times, it means that we look for nine justices to be super legislators. We look for nine justices to try to right the wrongs from other places in the process. When people talk about wanting to have empathy from their justices, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about trying to make the justices do something that the Congress refuses to do as it constantly abdicates its responsibility. The hyperventilating that we see in this process and the way that today's hearing started with 90 minutes of theatrics that are pre-planned with, with certain members of the other side here, it shows us a system that is wildly out of whack. And thus the fourth and final point. The solution here is not to try to find judges who will be policymakers. The solution is not to try to turn the Supreme Court into an election battle for TV. The solution is to restore a proper constitutional order with a balance of powers. We need schoolhouse rock back. We need a Congress that writes laws and then stands before the people and suffers the consequences and gets to go back to our own Mount Vernon if that's what the electors decide. We need an executive branch that has a humble view of its job as enforcing the law, not trying to write laws in the Congress's absence. And we need a, a judiciary that tries to apply written laws to facts and cases that are actually before it. This is the elegant and the fair process that the founders created. It's the process where the people who are elected, two and six years in this institution, four years in the executive branch, can be fired because the justices and the judges, the men and women who serve America's people by wearing black robes, 
They're insulated from politics. This is why we talk about an independent judiciary. This is why they wear robes. This is why we shouldn't talk about Republican and Democratic judges and justices. This is why we say justice is blind. This is why we give judges lifetime tenure. And this is why this is the last job interview Brett Kavanaugh will ever have. Because he's going to a job where he's not supposed to be a super legislator. So the question before us today is not what does Brett Kavanaugh think 11 years ago on some policy matter. The question before us is whether or not he has the temperament and the character to take his policy views and his political preferences and put them in a box marked irrelevant and set it aside every morning when he puts on the black robe. The question is, does he have the character and temperament to do that? If you don't think he does, vote no. But if you think he does, stop the charades. Because at the end of the day, I think all of us know that Brett Kavanaugh understands his job isn't to rewrite laws as he wishes they were. He understands that he's not being interviewed to be a super legislator. He understands that his job isn't to seek popularity. His job is to be fair and dispassionate. It is not to exercise empathy. It is to follow written laws. Contrary to the onion-like smears that we hear outside, Judge Kavanaugh doesn't hate women and children. Judge Kavanaugh doesn't lust after dirty water and stinky air. No, looking at his record, it seems to me that what he actually dislikes are legislators that are too lazy and too risk-averse to do our actual jobs. It seems to me that if you read his 300-plus opinions, what his opinions reveal to me is a dissatisfaction, I think he would argue a constitutionally compelled dissatisfaction, with power-hungry executive branch bureaucrats doing our job when we fail to do it. And in this view, I think he's aligned with the founders. For our Constitution places power not in the hands of this city's bureaucracy, which can't be fired, but our Constitution places the policymaking power in the 535 of our hands because the voters can hire and fire us. And if the voters are going to retain their power, they need a legislature that's responsive to politics, not a judiciary that's responsive to politics. It seems to me that Judge Kavanaugh is ready to do his job. The question for us is whether we're ready to do our job. I would sum up Senator Sass's comments by saying that we have lost sight of the non-delegation doctrine. This is the principle that a branch of government shall not delegate an authority granted to it in the Constitution to another branch of government or to an outside entity. This doctrine can be traced back to John Locke in his second treatise on government, published in 1690. Locke writes in chapter 11, paragraph 141, quote, The legislature cannot transfer the power of making laws to any other hands. It was delegated to them from the people, and they aren't free to pass it on to others. Only the people can decide the form of the commonwealth, which they do by instituting a legislature and deciding whose hands to put it into. The power of the legislature being derived from the people by a positive voluntary grant and institution can't be anything different from what the positive grant conveyed. And what it conveyed was the power to make laws, not the power to make legislators. So the legislature can have no power to transfer to anyone else their authority to make laws. This principle had great influence on the framers of our Constitution. Article 1, Section 1 states, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate 
in a House of Representatives. Now, it's very clear, all means all, all legislative powers granted to a Congress. There is no legislative power granted to the executive or judiciary branches. And as John Locke would point out, Congress has the power to make laws, not the power to make legislators of the executive or judiciary. Despite this principle, Congress has created an entire fourth branch of legislators in the form of regulatory agencies in the executive branch. In addition, the executive is a self-made legislator by use of a pen and a phone. And the judiciary has also become a self-made legislator by going beyond simply interpreting the Constitution and laws. Another example of abandonment of the non-delegation doctrine has to do with our financial system. Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin. But that power has been delegated to the Federal Reserve. The two most important things you need to know about the Federal Reserve are that it is not federal and there aren't any reserves. If you're interested in learning more, I will post a link in the show notes to an excellent book, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. So let's talk about a possible solution. Remarkably, there is a proposed solution which almost made it into our Bill of Rights. Check the show notes for a link to the history of the Bill of Rights. But after ratification of the Constitution, the first Congress got to work on amendments which we today refer to as the Bill of Rights. On August 24, 1789, the House passed a bill containing 17 proposed amendments to the new Constitution. On September 9, 1789, the Senate passed a bill consolidating three of the amendments proposed by the House and dropping two others, resulting in 12 proposed amendments. These 12 amendments were finalized in a conference committee on September 25, 1789. Now, the last 10 of these 12 proposed amendments were ratified and became known as the Bill of Rights. The second of the 12 proposed amendments was ratified actually in 1992, but that's another story. The first of the 12 proposed amendments has not been ratified, or maybe it has, but that's another story too. But let's go back to the two that were dropped from the House's original 12 proposed amendments. One of those was number 14 in that original list, and it said, No state shall infringe the right of trial by jury in criminal cases, nor the rights of conscience, nor the freedom of speech, or of the press. So, this amendment would extend some of the protection in the Bill of Rights to apply to state governments, as well as the federal. It's ironic that this was the 14th proposed amendment because our 14th amendment to the Constitution has had the same effect of extending protection of the Bill of Rights to state governments. The other dropped proposed amendment from those original 17 was the 16th, and it read like this. The powers delegated by the Constitution to the government of the United States 
shall be exercised as therein appropriated, so that legislative shall never exercise the powers vested in the executive or judicial, nor the executive the powers vested in the legislative or judicial, nor the judicial the powers vested in the legislative or executive. Had this amendment been proposed and ratified, it would have made the non-delegation doctrine an explicit part of our Constitution. Imagine that. Well, it's not too late. Maybe we need to dust off this proposed non-delegation amendment and make it an explicit part of the Constitution through an Article 5 Convention of the States. This is the Free to be Free Podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition to let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends.